It was a cold winter morning when I boarded a flight from New York's LaGuardia Airport to Orlando, Florida. Sitting on my lap was a printout of the report about the identification of Dean and Tina Klaus, 40 years after their murder. The article included a single color photo of the young couple holding their baby in the weeks, perhaps days before they were killed. I was transfixed by this photo. They looked innocent, happy, wholesome, like they had not a worry in the world. Their daughter, little blonde Holly Marie, sitting in between them, staring straight into the camera with a toy in her hands. I kept asking myself, how did they come to meet such a violent death? Who was responsible for their murder? And did they kill baby Holly too? I met my audio technician, Greg Murphy, in the lobby of my hotel, and together we drove to a quaint seaside town on the Atlantic side of Florida called New Smyrna Beach, about 15 miles south of Daytona. This story, it's so tragic and so sad. In 900 feet, the destination is on your right. We can only hope. I mean, hopefully that she's been taken care of, Holly, and that she's living a good life. And then maybe they can one day find each other. I was there to sit down with Donna Casasanta, Dean's mother, and his family to dig deeper into the mystery of this crime, unraveling as much as I could about the lives of Dean and Tina Klaus. All right. Are you ready, Greg? I'm ready. (laughs) All right. I think uh, I'll get out with the flowers and take you from there. Okay. Hi, Debbie. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Oh, pretty good. It was really easy for us to get here. Was it? I was afraid yeah. it would be harder. Yeah. Dean's no, no. older sister, Debbie, was first to greet us at the door. She was warm and hospitable and familiar and quick to show us a large painted portrait of Dean and Tina hanging on the wall near the front door, an artist's rendition of the photo I'd been studying on the plane. That photo was taken sometime in 1980 when Dean was 21 and Tina 17. Dean was handsome with a winsome smile. Tina was fair-skinned and pretty, with straight auburn hair parted down the middle. The family had an artist paint that photo for Dean's mother as a Christmas gift. That's the painting we had done. That's beautiful, that really is. Was this done with the photo, off of yeah, the photo? Yeah, off the couch, yeah. Debbie then brought me into the kitchen to meet Donna. I loved Donna Casasanta from the moment I met her. No sooner was I through the door when she wrapped me in a hug, her warm brown eyes making me feel welcomed. At 80 years old, she reminded me of an oak tree, like the ones I'd seen on my trip to Houston. Strong and wise and resilient and full of stories. Donna knew pain from an early age. Born in the mountains of West Virginia, she was unwanted at birth. At two weeks old, her mother gave her to an aunt to babysit and never came back for her. She was passed around from relative to relative, never living with the same family for more than a few months. She was abused and neglected and hid in a hole in the wall behind a dresser so that a violent uncle couldn't find her. And yet, Donna managed to create a beautiful, meaningful life for herself as a hardworking wife and mother of six children. Unlike her own beginnings, she was made to be a mother. Donna spoke of her children with such love and affection, including Dean, her second born, whom she called Junior. 
How are you holding up? How are you doing? I fall apart sometimes. It was clear that emotions were still raw. It was only three months prior that the family learned about Dean and Tina's violent deaths, and the news that baby Holly had never been found. For forty years, they never knew what happened to them. The biggest thing I think is who and why, and where's Holly. This doesn't make sense. Has anyone in law enforcement contacted you about? We contacted them, and our family and Tina's family both sent them. Uh, a letter saying, "Hey, you know, we really would like to have this case reopened." So they said it never had been really closed; it was just cold, and nobody been working on it. They said they had over seven hundred unsolved murders going back to the seventies. So, let's talk about Junior. What was he like as a child? <laughs> What are some of your favorite memories about him? How would you describe him? He was、um, stinker, happy-go-lucky. She tried to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> I was the firstborn. I was very yeah, jealous. Yeah, she was so jealous of him. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I was daddy's girl. That he came along. Yeah. She was okay as long as daddy didn't pick up the baby. So a、yeah. little bit of sibling yeah, rivalry. Yeah, a little bit. And what was he like as a boy? As a boy, he was typical child. You know, rambunctious, played with the girls. I think he teased him a lot as he aged. Oh yeah,、uh, they loved it though. You know, he always had something to show them, make them laugh. He loved to make them laugh. I don't think he fought with you, then, did he? Not really. No. It was no, I know no big deal. Usually, when we were growing up, yeah, you know, and we did get into it as brothers and sisters. Will the biggest thing I hate is when Daddy would make us kiss and make up. Yeah, I'd rather、oh, stand in the corner all day than to do that. <laughs> oh yeah. Debbie, how would you describe him as your younger brother? What are some of the things you remember about him? He liked to run around a lot and play. And we played all kinds of games, you name it. Especially、mm-hmm. when we were little, or playing games. We would live down the farmhouse. You know, we played red light, green light. Tess Welch, Dean's younger sister, also spoke with me about the brother she remembers. We always called him Junior, but then once he got older, he kind of flipped to Dean. You know, I know sometimes I'll tell people, I'm like, if I say Junior, I mean Dean, or if I say Dean, I mean Junior. He was always a handsome little boy, teenager in his older days. I think Michael Landon would probably be the closest that I think、um, Dean was. Always found him, you know, handsome and outgoing, and funny. You know, getting us to make us laugh over little stupid stuff that he would do. Even as a teenager, doing things that we were like, he's crazy, but always in my heart, you know, that's my brother. Always wanting to be the best person that he could and give from his heart and not out of necessity. You came before he did. Your needs came before his needs. He was a good friend, not just a brother, but a good friend. Over the course of the next few hours, I got a clearer picture of who Dean was. He was born on June seventh, nineteen fifty-nine, in Lexington, Kentucky. He was the second oldest of six, right behind Debbie. He had a thick mop of brown hair and a handsome face and slim build. He was a good student. He loved his family, and he was kind—kind kind to a fault. His family said he'd often pick up hitchhikers, much to their disapproval. Forget what was the girls had. One of them was in track. One of them was in swim team. One of them was in something else. I don't know. So they called me and said, "Mom, if we catch a bus, we're not going to be able to do the the race and everything." So 
I said, okay, I'll call Junior. He was at the house, and I called him, and I said, can you go get him? And he said he would. So he goes to pick him up, and on the way back, he picked up Hitchhiker. Well, I didn't know that till Cheryl comes in, slams her books across the floor, and goes, Mother, do you know what he did? And I go, no, what? She goes, he picked up a dirty old hitchhiker. He smelt, he stunk. I said, Junior, why would you do a thing like that, honey? Because you got your sisters with you. You know, bad enough you do it by yourself. But don't take their life in your hands, too. Oh, Mom, they're just people like you and me, and they're down on their luck. And I just want to help. From there on, I said, please don't pick up hitchhikers. I was taking him to work or somewhere. I forget where I was taking him. I was 17, he was 16. I was driving, he wasn't driving yet. And he wanted me to take him somewhere. And I remember we were going down US-1 in New Smyrna and there were some hitchhikers. There were like two or three of them, you know. And he goes, pull over and pick up those hitchhikers. So I'm like, no, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna pitch up no, hikers. No, no you don't have to. I know, but you know, mm-hmm. Junior. So I pulled over and we picked them up, took them down the road to base and they got out. What does that say about your son? What did that say about who he was? He had empathy, I think, for other people. He cared for others. When the family moved from Johnstown, Ohio, to New Smyrna, Florida in 1974, Dean was 15. And that's when some troubles began. Unfortunately, um, when Junior became a teenager, he did start dabbling a little bit of marijuana. So when he started getting into that, that's when we started seeing a little bit of a change. That's when he and I started having problems. Mm -hmm. Because as a junior, you can't do this. Mm -hmm. This is not good for you. Mm -hmm. And not only that, if you have anything like that or you come in my home, they can come and arrest me and I lose my other children. I'm not going to take that chance, son. So you better straighten it up. And he did for a while. And then something else happened to Dean when he was nearing the end of high school. I come home one day from work. He had this man. He looked to be early 30s, maybe, and a woman. I think it was his wife and two children, eight and ten. And they're on my front porch. I had a big screen in the front porch. And they're all dressed in robes, including my son. Okay. I said, Junior, what? I wanted to say the bad word, but I said, what is going on? Who is the, Who are these people? And he goes, oh, Mommy says, I've joined this group, and all they want you to do is buy a loaf of bread and a big jar of peanut butter, and they'll leave. <laughs> and I'm going, Really? Anyway, I did send Cheryl or one of the girls to the store while I stayed there and I didn't want them in my house. She got the peanut butter and the bread and came back. And then they said, well, we've got, we want to do this and we want to do that. And they didn't want to leave. You know what I'm saying? That's what they were giving me. We'll just sleep here on the porch tonight. I said, no, you won't. I said, I'll tell you what. I'll give you so many minutes to get your peanut butter and get your bread and get your sacks and out of here. Because if you don't, I will call the police. I said, I have other children. I have to protect my other children. You didn't have a good feeling about it? No, I didn't have a good feeling, no. Dean had taken up with a cult. His family wasn't sure of the precise name of this nomadic religious group, but they offered me a lot of description. Members referred to each other as brothers and sisters. They wore robes, And they were often seen in town eating out of trash cans on the street or restaurant dumpsters. People in New Smyrna called them the garbage eaters or the Jesus freaks. What do we know about them? 
from what I understand, they pretty much brainwash you to where you'll do almost anything for that person. There's one group they were showing. If men come in with wives, the man and wife can no longer have relations. That now she belongs to the head guy. They can take your children away. If you come in with children or you have children while you're there, but what I understand, they will take that child and put him with another group. Or once they get to be a certain age, when a boy gets to be, I don't even know what age, I'm going to say 13 or so, they put them in with the men's group. Mm-hmm. So they got ladies' group and men's group. Sometime in the mid-70s, Dean left home with his group and traveled around the country with them for more than a year. It only seemed like a year, year and a half later, he was back in the house. He never really talked about it when he got back. And so what was so secretive that you couldn't talk about it? And I, I, you know, I kind of reached back out to the family and said, do you remember this? Do you remember that? Do you remember him saying anything? Do you remember the leader's name? And nobody remembers anything because he just didn't talk about it. Do they require you to cut off contact with your family? Yes. You know, I have any contacts. Any idea what the name of this group was? I called them Jesus Freaks. I was thinking maybe it was the Brotherhood or the Brethren or something like that because they referred to each other as brother, you know. But as I read a little bit more, the group I'm thinking, and I'm nowhere near an expert, they called it Christ Family. More of our story after this short break. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This was the first time that I was hearing about groups like the Brethren and the Christ Family, religious cults that rose to prominence in the United States in the 1970s. The two groups had similar characteristics. Both held beliefs that were apocalyptic, centered on teachings that the world is soon to end. Both called for members to wander the country like disciples of Christ, nomads free of materialism. But Dean's sisters didn't know for sure which group their brother had associated with. And as far as I knew, neither group has been implicated in any wrongdoing or charged with any crime in connection with the murders of Dean and Tina and the disappearance of Holly. We don't know the name. We don't know. That's right. But we do know certain characteristics that they were dressed in robes. They referred to each other as brother and sister. They had a nomadic lifestyle and they ate out of garbage. Yes. And then the other thing is this group did smoke marijuana. And I know some of the other Jesus people movement that was a no, no. So I can't say junior loved his pot. I would think it was any of the groups. It would be the Christ family is what they called it. CF Christ family. Donna's first husband and Dean's father, Harold Dean Klaus died from a chronic illness in 1966 when the younger Dean was only six years old. Donna later remarried Venenzio George Casasanta. He, too, died when Dean was 12. When his second dad died, I came home from the hospital to tell the girl. So I go down there to let him know, and, and he looked at me, and he said, Mom, it's not fair I lose two dads. And I go, I know, son, and it's not fair I lost two husbands, but that's, that's life. 
and it's part of life. And we have a lot of ups and downs, good things and bad things, and we have to learn how to accept it and move on. From that point on, my boy changed. Wondering all the time, you know, searching, like he's searching. Mm -hmm. That's how I think about it. So as a boy, he was deeply affected by that mm -hmm. loss. But I think he was very hurt over that and he felt alone or something. So do you think that made him vulnerable? I do. And then Dean met someone who turned his life around for the better. A 15-year-old girl with long reddish-brown hair and a slender build named Tina Gale Lynn. How would you describe Tina? Tina was very pretty. Yeah. Guys and sort of auburn hair, I call it. Not blonde and not dark either. What was she like? She's sweet. She's a really sweet, good person. I wanted to learn more about Tina's young life. So I sat down with Les and Sherry, Tina's older brother and sister. How are you doing? How are you holding up? It's tough. How do you remember Tina as a girl? She was a happy little girl. We would sit across each other sometimes and one little look at each other and we would both start cracking up. It was just silliness. I loved her. She was a good little sister. We did the same thing that most kids did back in those days. She played with her dolls. I played with army men from a little Hot Wheel cars. She would have her tea parties. We liked to play the board games. Monopoly was probably our favorite game. What are some specific memories that you have about Tina? We lived within walking distance of Will Rogers Park, mm -hmm. and they had a pool, and we learned to swim, had swimming lessons in that pool. Beautiful little creek we played in, and we'd catch tadpoles and bring them home and keep them in a little dish until they transformed into frogs. Mm -hmm. We did a lot of things that those kids did then, played outside in the streets playing tag. But Sherry, being the oldest of the three, also remembers some problems with Tina's birth. She was strong and determined. She was a fighter. She was born premature. I don't know how much premature. Her skin was transparent, and she was only given a 50-50 chance to survive. But eventually she was brought home, a fine, healthy little baby. The early days of their childhood may have been filled with sunny parks and street games, but the death of their father had a major impact on the family dynamic. My mother moved around a little bit, with two stepfathers, the second one did a lot of construction, so as construction jobs completed and other ones started, we traveled a lot. Oklahoma to Arkansas to Minnesota to West Virginia, on down to Florida, and this happened over a period of about two or three years. So by the age of nine, we were in Florida. We had a lifestyle, though, that I really wouldn't wish on a lot of people. My second stepfather liked to drink a lot. My mom would drink with him. I think it was one of those atmospheres in the house that as soon as anybody was old enough to get out on their own, that was our intention. Was he abusive at all? He was never physically abusive, no. Not letting us do the, a lot of the things the average child could do. After we found out about Tina and Dean being killed, I contacted one girl, her name was Lisa, and I said, would you happen to have any special memory, something you could share with me? I was hoping for something happy, you know, something I could smile or laugh about. 
grandpa, she said, Tina, he was supposed to come to her seventh grade sleepover. When they went to school Monday, she asked her what happened. And Tina told her she got grounded because she had eaten the last hamburger the night before the party. It's like he was just looking for some reason for her not to be able to go. As I heard about Dean and Tina's similar experiences, like losing their fathers when they were both just kids, it made sense why they bonded so quickly. But Dean's mother says they made it official much faster than anyone expected. He doesn't tell me they're planning on getting married. He was a secret. He comes in one day, pops a piece of paper down. I was cooking, pops a piece of paper down on the counter. And he goes, okay, we're legal. And he walks away. (laughs) And I I pick it up and I looked up. Hey, what is it? Were you shocked? Yeah, I was shocked. I said, couldn't you at least talk to me? Let me know. I'm not going to say no. I'm going to maybe talk to her parents and we can form a little wedding or something, you know. He goes, oh, no, Mom, I just want something simple. Well, you got it. (laughs) The couple soon had a daughter. Holly Marie Klaus, born January 24th, 1980. What do you remember about Holly? She was a lot like Debbie. They were very fair and blonde hair and blue eyes and very playful. You know, you could play and she giggle and she just had the cooing stage. Yeah. You know, not saying words yet. Tina cherished her role as a new mother. And Dean's sister Tess says Holly gave Tina a sense of purpose. She was a good mom. Holly was like the light of her life. She would do anything for Dean and for her baby. She cherished them, you know, she, she truly loved them. Life was pretty good at this point in time. Dean was working as a carpenter for a construction company in New Smyrna, and Tina waited tables at a restaurant in town. Donna helped them get settled in a mobile home nearby. In 1980, When Dean was offered a promising job opportunity in Texas with D.R. Horton at the height of the construction boom, he didn't hesitate to take it. Mom, if I do this, he says, I can provide for them better, but my car won't make it. So I financed him a car. Mm -hmm. Actually, I had bought the car for Cheryl Ann. Mm -hmm. She had driven it for a while, Mm -hmm. but there's still payments to be made, you know what I'm saying? So I said, I'll make the payments, then you send me the money. That way I know the payment's made and my credit don't go bad, you know. So that's how I worked that out with him. What kind of car was it? AMC Concord. Red. It was a cute little car. As for the so-called Jesus freaks Dean had mingled with, well, they were out of the picture, as far as his family knew. To my knowledge, he had let all of that go. We had several little talks together. And I said, I said Junior, you got to get over this group stuff. Because all these people aren't good people. I mean, they might be putting it out there that they're, but they're really taking advantage of you. If everybody's working and you're paying in and giving them everything, and then you say, my baby needs diapers or whatever, and then they give you the money, you're still being used, son. And not only that, you've got her to worry about and that baby to worry about. Don't do this again. He promised me he wouldn't. We loaded the car down and everything, and they left the next morning. And when I went out to the driveway to talk to both of them, and I told her, I says, Tina, if anything happens that you don't think is right, I'm not saying it will, but if anything should go wrong, because sometimes some things do, you know, I said, all you got to do is call me. Just call me. Let me know. 
I'll help you. Because I had this gut feeling. And then I went on over to the other side of the car and I said, Junior, I want you to give me your word. Give me your word right now that you will not pick up a hitchhiker. Oh, Mom, I promise, I promise, stop crying. And I hugged him. And then as he's going out to drive, I had this terrible, terrible feeling that I'd never see him again, and I don't know why. And something kept telling me, jump in your car and go get him. Jump in your car and go get him. Tell him you can make it here. You have to make it here, you know. And I, I would give anything now if I had listened to my inner self. What is the last thing that you and Junior said to each other? I love you. I love you too, Mom. And he was off. Mm-hmm. First, Dean and Tina drove to Baltimore, Maryland, and stayed there for three months with Tina's sister, Sherry, and her husband, Johnny. From there, they made their way to Texas with baby Holly in tow, staying for a short while with Dean's cousin in Louisville, a suburb of Dallas. Eventually, Dean and Tina got their own apartment in Louisville. Sometimes Dean would call his mother to update her about work, though he kept things rather evasive. What would he say when he would call? Hey, Mom, I put the money in the mail. It's in the mail now. For the car? Yeah, for the car. Everything's okay. I said, okay, well, how's things going? Oh, it's okay, Mom. You could tell he wasn't quite being truthful. No. There was also a strange conversation between Dean and Tina one night while they were staying with Dean's cousin. She walked in on them while they were talking, and she overheard Tina say, the brother's going to be really mad. So do you think that they had reconnected with the group? That's what we're thinking. I think he was planning something. He realized he joined the wrong group, maybe. And he may have tried to get, try out. to get out. And then Tina sent Donna a letter in the fall of 1980 with pictures of Holly standing upright and pushing her own walker. The return address of the letter was Louisville, Texas. I will tell you this, Tina wrote me the most beautiful letter. And I would give anything if I could find it. I've moved so many times, I can't find it. And it simply said, Donna, you have been more of a mother to me and shown me more about life than my mother ever did. And I just want to tell you, I love you. It was like she was telling me goodbye. When I think back on it now, I should have, I should have realized she was trying to tell me something. That letter would be the last time Donna heard from them. We had always wondered, you know, why we never heard from him. So we just figured because he has to have no contact with family that he was with the group. And we just didn't know what happened. Did anyone at any point file a missing persons report? Terry filed missing persons when we found out about Junior, but we had done research as much as you could do back then. You know, mm -hmm. you don't have the computers back then they do now, mm -hmm. but we had contacted, I think the Salvation Army and yeah, we did know, everything. different places we could think of to contact. We did a search on his uh, social security number, but we couldn't find anything. And then we also ran a check on his social security every year at his birth date turned out to be her father's. Mm -hmm. mm. So, so for some reason, he was security. using his father. We don't know why. Memories are a funny thing. They're fallible. Just ask two people about the same event from the past, 
and you're likely to get varying recollections. Memories are reconstructions of reality filtered through our minds, not really perfect snapshots of events. But Donna Casasanta says she's sure about every last detail of a bizarre encounter she had 40 years ago. It started with a strange phone call right around the new year, 1981, three months after Dean and Tina were last heard from. They called me like 10 o'clock at night. It was a man's voice, and he simply said, is this Donna Casasanta? And I go, yes. He said, we found your car abandoned. He said, exclusive neighborhood in L.A. And I said, it's not my car. It's in my name, but it's my son's car. And he never identified himself? No. In the next episode, Donna reveals how that strange phone call led to a meeting with three mystery women who belonged to a cult. They drove in real fast when they started getting out of the car, and they had robes on and stuff. And there was three women. Two of them looked to be maybe... 17, maybe 18. Women she claims know the answer of who killed her son, Dean, and his wife, Tina. Do you think that this group, this cult, is responsible or knows who killed Junior and why? I do. I really do. That's next on What About Holly? From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to What About Holly ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.